before we get to today's show, I want to mention that this episode is brought to you by our partners at Edutech. Edutech is Australia's largest educational festival and returns to Melbourne on the 24th and 25th of August. With over 450 inspiring speakers, captivating keynotes, engaging workshops, enlightening panels, immersive breakout sessions, and 400 market leaders on the expo floor, this is an experience you won't want to miss. And yes, Ed Leaders will be there, so you can come by and say good day to us too. Register now with code EDLEADERS30 for an extra 30% off your ticket. Visit edutech.net.au for more details. All right, welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture, and the business of K-12 education. I'm your host, Luke Cullier, and joining me each week in the chair is my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving. Before we get started, if you haven't already, you should sign up to the weekly email sent out by the team at Ed Leaders every few weeks. Matt, what should someone expect if they sign up? Oh, oh, again, I haven't done my homework. I'm not ready. Uh, let's go with three words. Uh, again, I think we tried this last time. Uh, I think the good thing about our, our news is that what you can expect is something that engages your curiosity, that invites contemplation, uh, and that prompts your next conversation with your colleague. Uh, so that's why you should be reading it. Uh, it's three C's this morning from me. Three C's. Okay. I thought your first one wasn't a C, but anyway, uh, I'll give you a seven. Curiosity. Uh, okay. Curiosity. Yeah, all right. Uh, I'll give you a seven and a half today. Uh, now, you can sign up for the Ed Leaders newsletter at edleaders.com.au. Now, on to today's guest, which is Dr. Gary Stager. Gary is the founder of Constructing Modern Knowledge, Summer Institute for Educators, is an author contributing to over 20 books, has worked in over 30 countries, and in addition to consulting to many of the state departments around Australia, he's also worked with some of the world's biggest brands like Apple and Lego. He's a pioneer in the computing and maker movement education. He is also one of the headline speakers at Edutech 2023, and this episode is part of a five-episode partnership to promote the conference and to give you a bit of a background and a bit more context to some of the headline speakers at the event, which we are excited to be part of this year. So without further ado, let's get to it. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. How did I go with that intro? Is it, uh, did I get it uh, mostly right? Uh, my surname is Stager. Should have asked that before. Normally do. I apologize, <laughs> Gary. I'm As not I clear was- about the 20 books, but if you count, I've probably been in 20 books. I haven't written 20 books, but it's probably... Contributed to. I'm not sure where the number comes from, but uh, in a court of law, it's probably okay. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story, I say. Now, uh, we love to start the show with, uh, with a glimpse of your personal story in education and uh, how you came to be uh, a, a consultant and a worldwide expert in education and, uh, and the computer education makerspace. Well, my plan was to be a jazz musician until my conspicuous lack of talent caught up with me. Um, and then I became a primary school teacher. And um, this story is sounding very familiar, actually. This is very familiar to me. Uh, but I, but, but along the way, I, you know, I, I like to say that the things that bring me the most beauty and joy and purpose and meaning in my life, I learned in a um, public middle school in New Jersey, about 25 miles west of New York City. And then, mid 1970s and a lot of my passion derives from ensuring that future generations of kids have access to equally powerful learning adventures and opportunities. Um, and one of those was I learned how to program computers when I was about 12 years old and spent the next six years of school 
consumed by the idea of making things with with code, um, as well as composing music and learning about jazz and improv, improvising and such. Um, and graduated high school in 1981, thinking, well, that computer stuff was fun, but no one will ever have a computer. That you know, um, and. Six months later, got hired to start teaching kids how to program, and within a year was teaching teachers, and have been doing so ever since. Um, so all my work is around trying to make the world a better place for kids, to make school the best seven hours of a kid's life, and to create um, rich opportunities, not just to teach kids the things we've always wanted to teach them with greater efficiency or efficacy or comprehension, um, but to create opportunities to know and do and express oneself in ways that were unimaginable just a couple of years ago. And Gary, where does that that um, you know that sense of creating rich opportunities and access um, to children come from? That, that 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 idea of you know the best seven hours you could possibly have. Where, where do you where does that come from for you? Well, I think when we ponder the the purpose of of education and the future of schooling, I think the best we can hope for is um, to introduce children to things they don't yet know they love. And, and like I said, I was fortunate enough in, in what was otherwise, uh, you know, a mixed bag of an experience, um, to, to be introduced to things that I didn't yet know they love to fall in love with, with jazz and, and music theory and composition and, um, and computer programming, um, at a, you know, suburban, suburban state school. Um, and so I, I'm driven by the, this sort of idea that, I want to live in a world where kids wake up in the middle of the night with a burning desire to get back to school to work on something that matters to them and where their teachers wake up every morning and say, hey, you know, how do I make this the best seven hours of a kid's life? I don't, I don't think there's any alternative to that if, if we're thinking about the, the viability of school today or into the future. I'm interested, Gary, in, um, you know, like the work you get to do on a day-to-day and a week-to-week basis now. You know, I read uh, through your bio and the work that you do. I'm interested if you could give the the audience a little bit of, uh, I guess, insight into what you know a week looks like in you know in the work that you do, a week or a day. Um, it was a lot of napping. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right. Um, you know, and, and admittedly, the pandemic has sort of changed a lot. Um, but the, what's consistent in the work is trying to introduce teachers to powerful ideas, to assert um, their confidence and competence, to remind people that things need not be as they seem. So I I do a lot of writing formally and informally, you know, everything from blogging to writing books. Um, our, our book, Invent to Learn, Making Tinkering and Engineering in the Classroom, which has been called the, make, the Bible of the Maker Movement in Schools, just is celebrating its 10th anniversary. This month, it's been translated to nine languages, and it led us to publish about 15 books by other educators who had creative um, ideas to share with peers, and we've given them voice. Um, I do a lot of, you know, when I can, hands-on workshops, work with kids to show teachers through the eyes and the hands and the screens of their students what's possible so that they're inspired to continue to learn and grow on their own um, and speak at conferences and podcasts and, and things of that sort. Um, but it's, it's all around the idea of, you know, knowledge being the consequence of experience as Piaget teaches us and that the computer can be an intellectual laboratory and vehicle for, for self-expression that adds colors to the crayon box that ex- expands the breadth and depth and range of projects that are possible. And I think that, 
the project should be a teacher's smallest unit of concern. Love that idea. And, and, you know, you just sort of started to talk about, um, you talked about PJ and you talked about a little bit about, you know, um, the, the fact that you're a writer. I'd love to know sort of from an academic lens and maybe a sort of philosophical lens, you know, who's been foundational in the way that you've sort of constructed your own view of, of education, you know, the use of technology and, and, you know, the maker movement. You know, I've been lucky enough to work with most of my heroes and sheroes and to recognize that we stand on the shoulders of giants and that, it, one of the most rewarding aspects of my my life has been creating contexts in which I can share my my heroes and sheroes with other educators and let them experience what greatness looks like and sounds like and feels like. Um, and you know, there's no one more important in my intellectual development than my friend and mentor and colleague Seymour Papert, who's the father of educational computing and um, created the logo programming language um, for children more than 50 years ago. And Cynthia Solomon, who is a longtime associate of Seymour's, who I, I consider the mother of educational computing, and she's part of the faculty of our Constructing Modern Knowledge Summer Institute. Um, and, and these were folks who, in Papert's case, fought against apartheid with, with Mandela in the late 40s and 50s, was one of the pioneers of artificial intelligence, taught Piaget how to think about children constructing mathematical knowledge, and had the idea that the computer could be a rich environment in which one could could mess about with powerful ideas, and for example, um, learn mathematics in a virtual math land in in ways similar to the way you would learn French by by living in France. That you know, Pabert used to point out that no one ever says to a kid in Paris, "You don't have a head for French." Um, French is just something that's natural. It's part of their environment. It has power. It has meaning. It has culture. It has history. It has function. Um, and that the computer could be an environment where, where you can mess about with ideas just as naturally and amplify human potential. And people like Herb Cole, um, Jonathan Kozel, Deborah Meyer, uh, Lillian Katz, Laris Malaguzzi, Carlo Rinaldi, John Holt. You know, there, there's lots and lots of of people who I've been fortunate enough to to know or read or work with that that kind of frame my worldview. But consistent through all of that is believing in the power and the centrality and the confidence and competence of of students and and by extension their teachers. You can't behave as if the kids are are competent if you believe that your teachers are incompetent. Um, and the idea that we want to democratize rich learning adventures that we want to provide access to experience and materials and tools and expertise for all kids, um, regardless of who they are, which school they attend and, you know, accidents of birth. I'm interested in, in just going back to something that you mentioned earlier in, to, in terms of that, giving kids exposure to things they don't know they yet love. And, um, and I'm interested in your thoughts on, I mean, a lot of people, you know, over the last probably five to 10 years have started talking a lot about student agency and allowing them choice to learn the things that they want to learn. And I'm always curious as to, I guess, that tension between the exposure to a wide range of uh, knowledge or skills or dispositions um, to narrowing in on things that students kind of already have an interest in. And I'm wondering whether you could give any uh, any insights of what you've seen in that space. 
Well, sadly, when ideas um, go to school, they often lose a lot of their currency and become denatured. And and it's it's alarming the rate at which the frequency um, with which powerful, empowering ideas just become synonyms for test or quiz or maintain the status quo. Um, so it's it, it's sometimes lazy to talk about agency as if the kids will, as you know, in the old, the first episode of the Simpsons, when Bart Simpson cheats on his IQ test, he gets sent to a school for gifted children. And the first thing the teacher says when the bell rings is, te- you know, students discover your desks. Um, that, that this isn't laissez-faire and it's not shallow or superficial. It's about providing kids with non-coercive access to high quality experiences. And then that allows kids to choose specific domains to be where they, their project to which they um, dedicate more ambition and effort. You know, I was at a conference last week where someone was talking about designing schools and they were going to have a media wing. And in the media wing was going to be art and music and drama because after all, those are all part of media. And um, no, media is commerce. Art and music and drama are about being better humans and richer humans. And we ought to teach kids to play instruments. And, you know, school is really good at things like music appreciation, not so good at, at, at creating artists and musicians and mathematicians and physicists. And I'd rather kids be mathematicians rather than being taught maths or be a historian rather than being taught history. So, I think we want to provide kids with a wide range of of curated high quality experiences so they can then choose which ones of those to pursue as their as their project um, without us arbitrarily finding ways to trick them into being in a particular vocational path or lane. Um, so I, I think that you know the the imp- curation is really important there. That it's not just throwing a bunch of words on a table and letting kids decide they want to be a fireman or nurse. Or, I mean, that, that's what toddlers do. Um, but as, as you get older, as you mature, you should have a greater sense of what it means to be one of those things to pursue that idea um, with the discipline and rigor and joy and passion and curiosity um, that it's that is required. We, we want to invite kids into experiences without coercing them in, into tolerating something. Hmm. So I, I'm often I often think about you know that when I fell in love with computer programming in seventh grade in Mr. Jones's class, which was a nine week programming class that every kid was required to take in 1975. Um, between the making a tie rack and baking a souffle class that you also took for nine weeks during that year. Um, I often wonder how many kids found the experience as powerful as I did. Um, I wonder about it, but I'm not that concerned about it because I'm sure there were other kids who were more interested in the carpentry or baking than I was. And school makes a billion and one arbitrary decisions about what kids should be taught. Um, I'm not as concerned about which which ones of those things, as opposed to having a rich experience in which you learn to learn the other things that you may or may not need, you know, as we head into a, an uncertain future. 
And Gary, I can't help think that there's there's quite a there's a thin line between a curated rich experience versus something that's coerced. Um, and and I'm curious to know um, your sort of thoughts on that. And how might the sort of the maker movement sit with that notion of creating richest experiences for students? Well, you know, when we wrote Invent to Learn, we explicitly said don't make a maker space. That we want the the quality and kinds of rich hands-on, minds-on, computationally rich experiences to permeate every corner of the school every minute of the day, recognizing that there is some hardware that needs to be ventilated or secured or supervised. Um, but but we wanted to expand, the, you know, like I said, the breadth and depth of range and range of possibilities to have things being made everywhere for us to recognize that this wasn't just a way of engaging kids who have been traditionally not good at school or good with their hands in more academic pursuits, but recognizing that we're entering an age in which, regardless of what your business card says, which career you've chosen, you're going to be required to make things to solve problems that no teacher ever anticipated before that are either going to be made thing, made out of bits or atoms. And the, the success of Invent to Learn has been quite gratifying, but I, I laugh to almost tears every time someone comes up to me and says, you know, thank you so much for your book. It inspired us to make a makerspace. And, you know, I, I want to give them a reading comprehension test because we told them don't make a makerspace. <laughs> um, but, but schools were really good at creating this sort of thing you could write a press release about and parade people through on an open day as opposed to shifting actual practice. Um, and what that leads to is it makes those, those innovations, if you will, um, more fragile, more temporal. I like to say that um, bad ideas in education are timeless. The good ones are incredibly fragile. And one of the things we saw was the second COVID hit was schools that three months earlier had raised tons of money and built a shiny new makerspace and gotten the press around to take pictures of it, went, we're gone. We're done with that. Uh, let's move on to the next thing. And the, the alacrity with which they abandoned things that mattered to kids, like making stuff and art and music was really horrifying to me. While at the same time, there were examples of schools doing incredibly rich and beautiful and, and, and deeply moving stuff um, online that um, was a response to the isolation, the social distancing that the, that the pandemic required. So um, I'm not sure what, what, what you mean when you say, you know, the fine line. Um, but I try to err on the side of um, being non-coercive in everything that I do. If I have any superpower as an educator, it's that there's a whole lot of stuff in schools that I just don't care about that lots of other people care, care <laughs> a great deal about. <laughs> I'm interested, uh, Gary, uh, about what you've observed, I guess, in your time. You, you talked earlier about the nine-week course that you did in 1975 for your computer programming and what that looked like in the classroom, like how many computers there were, you know, how, how that happened, uh, and the, the journey, I guess, across the last, um, you know, 40 years, I guess, around going from those days to computer banks in schools to two you know two computers in a classroom to 
you know, like now laptops, one-on-one rollout, and then now where we have every kid probably has two, three, four devices that they could probably be using to to learn from or, or use for some sort of educational purpose. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of share, you know, the the journey that you've seen and kind of the opportunities, um, you know, and and what you see today that maybe makes you laugh about something that's uh, come full circle in that space. Well, I wish Mr. Jones was still with us because uh, although I got to say thank you to him, I'd like to talk to him more about his pedagogical approach. He had to have been a great teacher in 1975 because there were no books to read about teaching programming to kids. There were no after-school workshops. There was no edutechs, you know, conference. Um, there was one or two teletypes in his classroom connected to a mainframe timeshare system somewhere else. So he, just from a classroom management standpoint, he managed to keep us engaged, 25 kids or so in one or two terminals. Um, and for the first time in my life, I felt intellectually capable and creative and powerful and competent. Um, and then, and then over time, as you said, school, schools got computers. And then I was fortunate enough in 1990 to be invited to speak at the world conference on computers and education in Sydney. And I'd always dreamed of going to Australia. There was a book called, this is Australia. That's been recently republished a, a picture book for children that I had encountered when I was eight or nine years old. And I'd always wanted to visit Australia and I got a paper accepted and I flew down to this conference and. Seymour Papper was there and a number of my colleagues. And I met these remarkable educators in Australia who had just committed to having a laptop for every kid. And um, Australia invented one-to-one computing. And I was fortunate enough to be invited back three weeks later to help them make sense of that in classroom practice. And then spent the next, you know, better part of the next decade spending a lot of time in Australia um, helping schools across the country um, think about one-to-one computing. Um, and some of those educators are still in the classroom and some of them are in schools that are now debating whether kids should have access to devices. And we live in a time where the Labor Party in New South Wales campaigned for office on the promise of installing cell phone jamming technology in every school. The same technology they unironically mentioned they use in their prisons. Um, and no one seems to object to this. And first of all, it's always a bad idea to tr- to be mean to children arbitrarily. Um, but no one deals with the unintended consequences of these ridiculous policies or the remarkable absence of imagination that's created a context in which we're worrying about whether kids have access to something in the classroom, um, that we're we're still wedded to this notion um, that every teacher is Kate Blanchett and is such a spectacular performer that seven or eight shows a day, she has hundreds of students eating out of the palm of her hand from bell to bell. It's a ridiculous proposition. And um, that, that kind of saddens me. And it, I, I often say that the if we want to improve education, the first thing we should do is find a cure for amnesia. Um, I mentioned before, we stand on the shoulders of giants. I've got behind me the first doctoral dissertation published in Australia in the early 1990s on the efficacy of one-to-one computing. And the model of one-to-one computing that I was involved in at the very beginning, um, at at the first two schools, parenthetically, I'll tell you that 
I've, I've met dozens of schools who have told me that they were the third school in Australia to have a laptop for every kid. Um, <laughs> Because the first two are clearly documented, the third's a little murkier. Um, the the vision the vision was deeply humane and beautiful and aspirational, and it was about blurring the artificial boundaries between subject areas and empowering kids and creating more collegial environments for teachers and kids to learn together. Um, and then over time, you know, it sort of reverted to form. But it it makes me kind of sad that we still have to introduce this idea of modernity as some sort of innovation. Um, and that some of the very same educators who saw with their own eyes in their own classrooms, what kids were capable of doing have, have so readily reverted to policing, whether their students were in uniform during lockdown. When you know, I mentioned before, there's a whole lot of stuff I don't care about, like bells and grades and quizzes and ranking and sorting um, and curriculum. Um, the idea that I would be worried about what a kid was wearing in their bedroom when we were a guest in their home is just remarkable to me. I, I, I don't I don't know what kind of pathology in adults gets us to that point or where the good side in an election can say that if you bring us to power, we'll be arbitrarily mean to children and, in, and you know, and use the exact same technology and, and, and practices that we enforce in a penitentiary. So do you think, Gary, there's, there's, there's almost a sense of, you know, you talk about the pathology of, of things, you know, the, that notion of fear, what is it, um, you know, about technology that perhaps invokes that sense of fear from educators, policymakers and the like, rather than its potential. Oh, I you know, there's always, there have always been things that kids have known that adults didn't know, whether it was Disney princesses, which my four-year-old granddaughter has a PhD in, or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or footy, footy statistics. Um, what might be different now is what kids know is, could be valuable and, and, could, and could be powerful. Um, but I don't know. I think if if you're if, if if you think first of all, there are very few of us who are that entertaining and that that dynamic that we sh that we should have the audacity to think that we're entitled to an audience for five or six or seven shows a day, and that everyone should do what we say. Um, <laughs> right? We we talked about you know excellence and art, and you know like, you're just not that good. Um, and but. You know, get over yourself. It's so much more fun when, when we allow for serendipity. You know, I was, I was running around for a while responding to the idea that Australia or New South Wales or Victoria or New Jersey or California was going to have a K-12 or P-12 set of computer science standards that every kid was going to be taught computer science from P-12. And I was initially thinking, wow, that's, noble and i i admire the sentiment um but there's a lot of us who've been engaged in this for a long time who have no idea what kids would be capable of doing if they actually spent 12 or 13 years doing it and how are we supposed to roll out a p to 12 curriculum when we have no idea what's possible and i was feeling pretty smug and confident in saying that for a while until my friend and colleague and mentor cynthia solomon heard me say it and she said of course, we know what kids are capable of doing. They're capable of surprising us. So 
I never worry about classroom management because I never walk into a classroom thinking I need to manage anything. And that's not just some delusion on my part. I prove this over and over and over again from the 300 teachers who joined me for a live coding workshop online a couple of weeks ago for two straight hours to the countless number of schools where I've, you know, been walked down the corridor with a principal who said, I was wondering if you could work with some year sixes and I go, how many? And they go about 350 now. And I turn a corner, there's a room full of kids with laptops and it's a gymnasium full of kids. And I just have to invent something. Um, the workshops we ran a few months ago in Bulgaria, where we had a group of eight, eighth grade boys and a tiny little girl working with them. We thought maybe it was someone's little sister that they were responsible for that day. And, and they said, no, 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 she's in second grade and she's the, she's the brains of the operation. Or, or my doctoral research, which was in creating a multi-age project-based alternative learning environment inside a prison for teenagers where kids were able to work five hours a day uninterrupted on a personally meaningful project. And in three and a half years, we didn't have a single kid who had to leave the class for discipline reasons. I never feel like I have to manage a class. So I walk in with an open mind and an open heart and say, hi, I'm Gary. We've got stuff to do. Let's get going. And, um, and then st good stuff tends to happen. So, you know, I, we're getting to, we're getting to a point where we're going to have to decide, you know, whose side are we on? If, if we're not willing to stand between the kids and the madness, who will? And, and a lot of what teachers are being asked to do um, is on the wrong side of history. It's bad for children. It's bad for teachers. It's bad for the community. And they need to, to stand up for it, One of the, against it. One of the things that I loved about Australia early on in my, my visits was you tended to be about 20 years behind the U.S. in bad stuff. <laughs> um, but, but probably because of the internet, you caught up really quickly. So if there was some rat bag spewing nonsense in the U.S., your prime minister was flying them over. And um, and you have a – in some ways, there's, a, there's an interesting skepticism in Australian culture, um, but there's also an acceptance of some crazy assumptions that, that need to be challenged. So I, the, I, think, I think maybe it's about control, but, I, you know, if, if you view your job as an educator as being some sort of amateur prison guard – you ought to find a prison to work at. I think what the interesting idea there is, you know, how do teachers see themselves? You know, what's their identity? How do they see themselves in the classroom? How do they see themselves in a system where they're constantly being told what to do that potentially um, is at odds with what, what they know to be true in terms of what's good for, for students? Does, does that resonate? I think with the passing of time, that knowing what to do is more intuitive than it is knowing. Um, I think one of the things that's happened in teacher preparation, as well as, you know, P to 12 education is, um, the experience has become more, has become narrower, more functional, more tactical, more vocational. Um, so when I studied to be a primary teacher, you not only had to learn how to teach every subject, including music and PE and science and history, you were required to learn how to play the piano a little bit and the value of arts and crafts and projects and how to organize a classroom and the environment. And then little by little in the mid eighties, all over the world, policymakers decided, Hey, you know what? Teaching ain't nothing. Um, here's a bag of tricks. Just follow this script. And we removed agency from teachers. And as we removed agency from teachers, the results real or imagined, um, 
suffered. And, and then we res- we, the way we responded to that was to remove more agency from the teachers that it was a downward spiral. And from the kid perspective, it's exactly the same. There's no more extended periods of time in which kids could become lost in something and become great at something and role play and explore an idea and ponder and chase their curiosity and explore a sense of wonder so that, you know, year one is much more like a TAFE, you know, where every 20 minutes someone rings a bell and you move on to something else. And now you're going to the year one reading specialist and a year two math specialist. And I, I mean, I, I'm mystified by this, you know, what does a year one literacy expert mean? You, yeah. And so the connections between subjects aren't, aren't as, as rich as they could possibly be. Teachers don't know their kids as well as they used to. Um, and, and all these sort of wondrous opportunities for serendipitous connections to a world of ideas and experiences and um, possibilities are, are being missed because we're, we're viewing school in such a um, transactional fashion, both from the teaching perspective as well as from what, what the kids actually experience in, in their classrooms. I mean, some of the finest educators I've ever met in my life are in Australia. One of my favorite schools in the world is in, is in Australia. But like I said, it, you know, bad ideas are timeless. And because of the internet, they're traveling really quickly. And you add to that a system that's been traditionally rooted in class or worse segregation. And, and you, you then can use all these new powerful potential instruments of empowerment um, as a way of preserving those class distinctions. If you love what we do here at EdLeaders, then please support us by supporting our sponsors. And as you heard at the top of the show, today's sponsor is Edutech. Edutech is one giant festival for all of education, and this year is happening on the 24th and 25th of August at the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre. Not only will you hear from an amazing lineup of speakers, including today's guest, you'll also be able to meet us there. Yes, that's right. Ed Leaders is coming to Melbourne and you'll be able to stop by and say good day in the Exhibition Hall featuring over 450 exhibitors where you can see some of the latest and greatest from the world of technology and innovation. Aside from seeing us there, you can learn from some of the best educators around the globe with learning streams for school leaders, teachers, ICT managers, and digital technology, just to name a few. There are also boundless opportunities to hang out, network, make new connections, and exchange ideas. If there is one conference this year to level up your leadership game, this is it. Register now with code EDLEADERS30, that's E-D-L-E-A-D-E-R-S 30, for 30% off your ticket. Visit edutech.net.au for details. And make sure you support us by stopping by and saying hello. Now let's get back to today's show. I'm interested in that notion that you just described there of particularly around, um, you know, teachers and, you know, going back in the journey, you know, where teachers would teach all subjects and now there's there's a much higher level of specialist teachers. Uh, I'm curious as to your thoughts on, particularly when it comes to computer science, um, I mean, I always kind of note that it's always hard for, I think, teachers to teach things that they didn't learn themselves when they were in schools. And computer science or digital technology 
as we tend to call it here in Australia, seems to be one of those subjects that most teachers didn't learn much of when they were in school um, and therefore find it quite challenging to teach as a teacher um, in primary schools. And I, and I wonder about how you've seen that, um, you know, in different contexts around the world um, and how those teachers that do it really well are finding the time or not finding the time, but have, have managed to upskill themselves enough to engage students in a classroom in that sphere. Well, I think we ought to need, we need to be able to hold two thoughts in our heads simultaneously. And that is that all kids need rich computational experiences and that some kids will choose computer science as their project. And if we think about providing rich computational experiences for all children, then it could be done by, by any teacher. And, and in fact, if you look at what happened at Methodist Ladies College and in Melbourne and Kumbaba State Primary School in, in, on the Gold Coast, which were the first two laptop schools in the world, um, we were teaching computer programming across the school in every subject because it was a way of making connections and expressing oneself and playing with powerful ideas. Um, and there were really nice things that happened in the drama department and in French and et cetera. Um, because it was an expectation that ev everyone would be doing some computing. The, the very fact that you have these digital technologies, which before it was called ICT and before that it was called something else, was in fairness to my friends who have been involved in these curriculum um, documents in, in Australia, um, the, the most generous way to describe a lot of them is what Alan Kay, the kind of inventor of the personal computer um, called computer appreciation. And when you say, oh, we're going to teach this in every school now, you can create a binder full of colored charts and meaningless vocabulary lists and tests and quizzes and external assessments to ensure that a whole bunch of kids learn a lot of words absent any actual experience or useful knowledge. And I think that that's a lot of what's happened. Um, what we did with what we did with the personal computers and and the use of the word personal computer was really important and deliberate. It was the kids' computer. It was the children's machine. We knew we were onto something in the early days when the kids started writing on their laptops with glitter pen and affixing stickers to it, and it was theirs. Um, and over time, it became less theirs. It became more locked down. It became more part of the systems. And schools went from, you know, MLC had 2,000 laptops and a nice old lady named Louise who, when your laptop broke, patted you on the head, gave you a, handed you a Kleenex and said, I'll, I'll call the vendor. They'll repair your laptop. Um, to a few years later, when the internet arrived in earnest, and then all of a sudden, you know, adults were freaked out again about what kids might learn or read, or see, or have access to, or God forbid, talk to each other about, um, that we then started employing IT teams that were then telling licensed teachers what they could and couldn't do with computers. Um, so in a, in a lot of ways, the expectations are silly. And because the expectations were unrealistic, um, we had to create the illusion of progress. And that illusion was generated by just making a laundry list of vocabulary words that kids would know and then, um, and inventing, you know, Potemkin confections like hour of code. 
When I see schools that 30 years ago committed to a laptop for every kid and programming across the curriculum, issuing press releases, announcing that they participated in an hour of code, it makes me want to cry or hurl. I'm not sure which. <laughs> right. You know, out, you know, a thing like hour of code would, would be great if we were, you know, landing on Jupiter and we're trying to introduce their inhabitants to computing or we're going into, you know, you know, the deepest jungle in a developing country and no one had ever seen a computer before. But the idea that in Melbourne or Sydney or, you know, Cairns or Perth, that we need to spend an hour telling kids that computers are, you know, computer, wow. Um, it's kind of vulgar and sad <laughs> and pathetic. <laughs> well, I love it, Gary, that you just, you know, you, you shoot from the hip, you say it how it is and you, you know, um, I think, you know, great, great challenge um, that you, you bring to to the discourse um, and provocation. And, you know, for those those people that are listening, they're thinking about getting to Edutech, um, what are you going to be speaking on? And what can, um, what can leaders and teachers expect um, to hear from you uh, if they attend? Well, that's a, that's a good segue because, you know, talk is cheap. You know, being, being provocative is only because I'm willing to say what, what's important, what I believe is important to say. Um, but I back it up with examples of what we can do in classrooms right now to make to make school a better place for kids to learn. Um, and so I'm going to be running a full day workshop that's going to share a variety of computational experiences where we look at the incredibly exciting and increasingly affordable technology that allows kids to ex expand the colors in a crayon box, to make things, to solve problems. Um, in ways that were unimaginable just a couple of years ago. And then I'll be doing a number of, of presentations intended for, for teachers as well as school leaders. I, I think the, the keynote that I'm, I'm going to do is, is called the, ca the Case Against Innovation, um, which is related to what we're talking about, that rather than worrying about being out front with the latest fad, recognizing that there's a difference between timeless and old, and as schools should be preserving timeless activities and providing those experiences for as many kids as possible, that um, we stand on the shoulders of giants, that we've done the work, that there are projects and rationales for projects and ways of in introducing project-based learning in a computational sense that allows kids to be powerful learners and to simultaneously crush whatever meaningless external you know, assessment matters to you. Um, you know, I remember, you know, when the VCE came in and, you know, the, the, the best stuff I ever saw produced in schools was some of the best stuff I ever saw produced was in the, you know, VCE, I don't know, I had some preposterous course, like course title, like food technologies, you know, where, you know, kids were making these food, these, you know, everything's this highfalutin bullshit, you know, this meaningless, empty rhetoric. Um, but the kids were making these exquisite food hampers that really, really demonstrated a great deal of skill and knowledge and thought and persistence and curiosity and um, talent and perseverance and focus. Um, and it was often in the stuff that was given an inflated title because it was the track where we were going to put, and I'm making inverted commas here, the dumb kids, 
where where the most exciting work was was taking place, where the best examples of what learning could look like in the future were emerging. Um, so, you know, I've been doing some some work recently with you know year five and six kids, and then I started rolling it out to teachers, um, where I'm teaching some list processing in Logo. Logo is a programming language developed for kids more than 50 years ago. Some of these ac- activities are nearly 50 years old, but they allow kids to play with, with linguistic patterns and teach exceptions to the computer and deal with logic and conditionals and variables and word and list processing and concatenation and a laundry list of skills that we could put on the you know, list of stuff that people care about. But in the playing with th- these problems, First of all, you see kids start to wonder maybe for the first time in a while. Then they start forming hypotheses. Then they start trying to disprove each other's hypotheses. Then they try to break each other's code. Then they try to break their own code. Then they engage in some deep debugging. Then they make discoveries that leads them to make their programs smarter. And very quickly, a a year five kid will exclaim with complete predictability, hey, this is just like AI. And then I took that very same sort of epiphany and in playing with ChatGPT, which everyone is either overly hyping or hysterical about and banning, um, I asked it if it could perform a second grade arithmetic problem, a really good arithmetic problem that, that people like myself used to do with second graders that kids still find kind of fun and adults find a really interesting parlor trick. And um, turns out that ChatGPT was completely confident that it could solve the problem. And then when I asked it to do so, all of the results it gave me were wrong. And first of all, I had to recognize they were wrong. And once I recognized they were wrong, I had to prove that they were wrong. So I ended up writing a program to prove that they were wrong. And that led me down a rabbit hole of asking a lot of other kinds of questions. And and then it just so happened I received an email in the middle of the night from my friend Stephen Wolfram, who's arguably the most important living mathematician, scientist, computer scientist who made the software that every actual mathematician and scientist in the universe uses. And um, I shared with him this second grade problem. And he said, that's wonderful. Do you mind if we put this on our website? Um, and at 3 a.m., he wrote me some code that in one, basically one line of code does all of the work that I had found impossible to achieve. Um, and and so we, and then within a couple of weeks of that, his software was added to ChatGPT as a plugin. So now it won't get the second grade arithmetic wrong. And more importantly, you can do computational um, work in the generative AI environment. And, and so we have this, to use again, Seymour Papert's idea, we have this math land where second graders and Stephen Wolfram are engaged in the same kind of wonder and joyous quest for knowledge, search for truth, messing about with ideas in a computationally rich environment. Because at every level, the computer makes it possible for a variety of us to participate in that kind of learning adventure. You know, I, I got in trouble for an essay I wrote a number of years ago where I said I've been fortunate enough in my life to, to know and spend time with some of the world's most prominent mathematicians. And not once did any of them make me feel stupid. Um, but plenty of maths teachers did. And, and again, to, to 
you know, I have a PhD in science and mathematics education, but I also have a strong background in the arts. And that experience isn't dissimilar from the interest that the great jazz musicians take in the 15-year-old drummer that I drag backstage to concerts now, um, who care about him and are interested in spending time with him and willing to let him be in their company because he wants to preserve something that they love. And he's part of that community of practice. And, you know, like I said, I mean, we could, I could draw a map of this, but the computer allows me to talk to the world's greatest mathematician. It allows me to share a problem with him that um, it allows kids to engage in that problem. It allows his engineers to help chat GPT get smarter. There's not a causal link between all of these things, but we're in a world where such possibilities exist. And that's really exciting to me. And it's all based on another lesson I learned from the great jazz saxophonist, Jimmy Heath, who liked to say, what was good is good. So one of the things I hope to bring to, one of the lessons I hope to bring to Edutech is there was an awful lot of really good, important, historic work that happened on that island of yours um, that we should celebrate and, and learn from and build upon. And there's no time like the present to do so. I'm going to ask the question that that audience members will no doubt be thinking about, um, and that is, uh, you know, a lot of what I what I hear is it's almost like the case against constraints of the system, um, and it's the case against potentially maybe what what parents think they want versus maybe what a what is best for a student or you know is going to have the greatest learning impact for a student. So. I'm interested in that, uh, your thoughts on, you know, you've talked about a lot about what you, I guess, are not interested in part of the system, but how do, how do leaders or, you know, how do we think about giving parents more information to say, hey, these are the, these types of exp- experiences or the, you know, curated learning experiences are actually going to be more meaningful in the long run than the tests and the exams and the, and the bits and pieces that we have as part of our system requirements. Well, I think we, we, need to, we need to find the courage to do the right thing. And I think there are a lot of elements in place in Australia to make this possible. Um, but doing the right thing may also mean that we might have to let some other kids succeed. Um, you know, you live in a country that I, that I really admire because I remember when the Minister for Education in Victoria said something that offended teachers and they shut the system down until he apologized. That doesn't happen in the United States. And so if you have that level of courage, then we should just continue to build upon it. Um, you know, you've got an awful lot of choice in your system. You know, in, in the United States, there is zero amount of public money that goes to independent schools. Australia can't imagine a system in, without independent schools. It always makes me giggle when people say, well, you know, if we didn't have these, these elite, you know, independent schools, you know, we wouldn't be able to afford to educate every kid. It's, a, it's preposterous. It's preposterous. Um, and, you know, in the 30 plus years that I've been, been traveling to Australia and living in Australia, I've observed that in the U.S., we've always considered a dropout problem. You know, why aren't kids staying in school through year 12 and going to university? And um, Australians seem to have a drop-in problem. You're still trying to figure out why the kids 
keep showing up. Um, and, and can't even imagine a system. Can't even imagine a system where anyone who wants to go to university and wants to show up can. Um, I, I mentioned I'm, I'm an alum of the University of Melbourne. I earned my PhD there. I'm a member of the, the university club. And it blows my mind that at 4 p.m., that campus is boarded up. It ought to be running 24-7. Don't tell me there's no money to pay faculty. Admit more students. Have non-traditional students there nights and weekends. Let anyone who wants to do the work show up. If they don't do the work, they leave. So we have to have not only some courage, but a greater sense of imagination that that education um, is something available to all, that it no longer needs to be rooted in scarcity. We, we, have the, we have the opportunity now in the technology and the means to democratize it, to open up the doors to anyone who wants to participate. So the idea that we need to be ranking and sorting and creating winners and losers is preposterous. And we can bitch about the league tables all we want until we're willing to say that, let's get rid of them. And, and that, may, that may temporarily not let my kid crush some other peer and, and, and take a place in line ahead of them. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's really fundamental to, to our, a sense of justice and fairness and for the preservation of democracy that we recognize that um, we don't have to create winners and losers, that the system can, can, can contain, welcome, educate great number of people, you know, for a lifetime. You know, we like to give a lot of lip service to lifelong learning. But like I said, pick the university of your choice in Australia and show up at sundown and, and you'll see what a waste of resources it is. Um, and there's, there's no reason for it. So as long as, as long as the educational system is trying to get everyone through a narrower and narrower funnel, then, then it's producing exactly the results that, are, that, it, that it desires, which is a handful of kids will do really well and a lot of other kids who won't. Some kids will have opportunities, other kids won't. And, and we're, we're terrible at predicting what, what the future is going to need, even though we, we behave as if we've, we've got a set of tablets that, that's, you know, of, of my three university-educated children, the only one who's lived on her own with an apartment and health insurance and steady employment since the second she graduated was the art major. You know, I, I could give you a thousand stories like that. We want kids who feel like they're capable, they're confident, they can communicate, they can create, they can solve problems. They've developed intellectual um, and social capital that, that enables them to find mentors and seek opportunities for collaboration. Um, all those things exist even before computers and the internet and generative AI but now there are even more opportunities to blur the artificial boundaries between subject areas, remove the hurdles and obstacles to more kids having better, richer educations. Fantastic. Love it. Love the, um, that, that idea of being courageous. Um, and so much for us to sort of think about. Gary, as we sort of head towards the end of our time together, we, we have a time of sort of personal reflection and we want you to be audacious, um, embrace audacity and tell us what are you most proud of thus far in your career? I'm proud of the consistency that, that the work I 
did in 1982 with kids on a horse trailer next to a pond and a goat where I was teaching kids the program is remarkably consistent with the work that I'm doing today. Um, I'm proud of the, the opportunities I've created for educators to come together and, and interact with, with talented, smart, caring, loving, um, audacious people. And, and I'm, I'm proud of, I'm, I'm proud. I'm enormously proud of the work that, that I've been able to do in Australia. Um, like I said, you know, it was, it was Australia where some, some brave educators put their hands up and said, Hey, you know what? I'm not sure what this is going to look like, but I've been hearing about these smaller computers and maybe we can use this as a way of changing everything about schooling. And, and for a time, at least they did. And that, you know, I think the the curse of my of my career has been that early on I had such rich experiences with such generous, brilliant activists and educators um, that I know what's possible, and I'm frustrated by how challenging it is to make the right thing um, more universally visible in schools. I like it. I, uh, I mean, the, the passion that you have for it, I think, is uh, palpable to some to some degree, and you know, it really comes across um, in kind of the way you're kind of talking today. Look, um, as we uh, wind up, we uh, we get to my favourite segment of the show, Gary, which is uh, six in sixty Lightning seconds. Round. Okay, one word or idea—that's the rules. But uh, hey, nobody listens to the rules, so you do what you like when it comes to the answers. <laughs> I have a feeling that Gary doesn't follow any rules anyway. So well, it's all good. he has alluded to that a little bit, doesn't he, Matt? <laughs> yep. All someone right. said, some, uh, a colleague of mine said that um, some people think outside of the box, Gary's unaware of the box's existence. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to take that, use that. All right, yep. you ready? Yep. The best conference or PD you've ever been to? International Association of Jazz Educators, now defunct. <laughs> The most underrated role uh, in education. Music teacher. The most inspirational speaker you've ever seen. Uh, Seymour Papert. I could think of others, but I'll go with Seymour. The most interesting person you've met in a green room at a conference. Mr. Rogers. If you could change one thing about education (laughs) or the ed tech industry, what would it be? Less us, more them. And finally, one book worth reading. The Inner Principle by David Loader. Most extraordinary school principal probably of the last century, an Australian. His book is a revelation. People should read it. I'm impressed. I thought you were going to say the book just above you there, Impact to Learn. Well played. Invent to Learn. (laughs) Invent to Learn, sorry. (laughs) Get better at the shame of self-promotion. Yeah, um, exactly. (laughs) So I'm going to give you 10 out of 10 because you you followed the rules. Although although I will say I'm I'm the the publisher of of the inner principal because – the, the prior publisher let it go out of print. Um, and I think it's an important book and it's a great read. So you kind of got halfway there with the self-promotion then. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings an end to our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed our little chat with Gary uh, prior to his uh, appearance at Edutech. Matt, closing comments. I know you've got them. I can't read all the notes on my page again. Um, look, Gary, just I loved uh, loved our conversation today. Um, you know, the things that will stay with me is that notion of, 
you know, introducing students to things they don't yet know they love. Um, I just think that's such a, a great call to sort of action and reflection. Um, I, I'm also interested, and I'm doing some work in this space of, you know, wh- what have we done to remove agency from teachers? Um, so again, I think that's something that, that I'll reflect on. Um, I love that passion of playing with problems. Um, and the last one for me is, is again, how are we making the seven hours our students are at school the best um, in their life? And um, so I just think there's cause for reflection, um, but also a call to action. So um, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. So thank you. Luke, what have you got? Uh, once again, you've, you've taken a few of mine, but, uh, you know, I did wonder when he made that comment around how many kids go to school on a day-to-day basis and don't experience that notion of the seven best hours of their life. On a, on a semi-regular basis and, you know, how I guess, you know, sad that is in a way that for something that takes up the bulk of our children's lives, they're not experiencing that joy all the time. I really enjoyed the that notion of the curated, really high-quality experiences that we can continue to kind of bring into the classroom, not just delivering kind of like the mediocre, yeah, done this before, rolling out the same same, but really curated you know, high quality experiences and, uh, you know, that notion of project-based learning and creating meaningful learning experiences that are right for the right student at the right time. Uh, and, I can, and, I, and I can go past that kind of, you know, that um, what you described in the, in, the, in the last part of the show there around democratising the access to education, particularly at a, at a higher education lens. Um, you know, Peter Hutton, we've had on the show before, who's talked about the same thing, but democratizing that access, there's no reason why this day and age we need to create, you know, this kind of limited and constrained access to higher education by ranking, because at the end of the day, the technology that we have at our fingertips really allows for an unlimited number of students to be participating in probably 60 to 70% of first year courses. Um, and so why are we not leveraging that in a, in a, in a more meaningful way? So, uh, with that, uh, Dr. Gary, um, thank you for giving up your time to be on our show today. I know we, we really appreciate it and I'm sure the audience will get a lot of, uh, a lot from the show and a lot of thought and kind of challenge for themselves. Uh, and I know that they'll probably be getting along to, to see, uh, see you at Edutech, uh, later this year. For the audience out there that want to connect with you in the meantime, you know, find out a bit more about the work that you do, where's the best place to find you on the internet? ProfessorGaryStager.com slash Oz, O-Z, O-Z, and uh, Car and the Tigers. The Tigers? <laughs> what? I don't know. Uh, I don't know about that. But uh, anyway, I'll let you off the hook on that. Any uh, closing other comments from yourself, uh, Gary? No, see you in Melbourne. I'm looking forward to getting back. Excellent. Remember, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show and don't forget to share the love and tell a few of your colleagues or maybe the person sitting next to you on your way to work that you should be listening to Ed Leaders. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you haven't signed up to the Ed Leaders newsletter, you are missing out. Check out edleaders.com.au for more details. And if you haven't already, you should be getting your ticket to Edutech. We will see you there. Gary will see you there. And we look forward to uh, two days of experiential learning and kind of opening our eyes to uh, what's really happening in the world of education at the moment in 2023. You can connect with Ed Leaders and both of us on LinkedIn. We'll keep you up to date with all the latest of what we're up to. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week.